Hey, I'm Johanna Wagstaff. And hi there, I'm Rohit Joseph. And we're asking for 10 minutes of your day to go through the 10 things that the UN recommends we can all do when it comes to climate change. Please don't leave. No. And also the things (laughs) aren't new. We are just wired to not do them. We promise you to help you figure out your brains and you and your people can make better choices to combat climate change. 10 Minutes to Save the Planet is available now on CBC Listen and everywhere you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. A few months ago, some friends of mine got married. And I should say this up front. As far as weddings go, this one was amazing. His family is from Sri Lanka, so there was a hopper station with this killer mutton curry. And she's Jewish. I'm pretty sure I ruptured a couple of discs, helping to hoist them up in their chairs for the horror. Hold on for your One of the very best parts of that wedding was the scotch. One of the guests that day works in the liquor business for the Balvini, this historic distillery in Scotland's Speyside region. And she brought a 34-year-old scotch that had been aged in port barrels. That was probably the nicest scotch. It was definitely the nicest scotch I've ever tasted. This woman's job is mixing business and pleasure. Her title is something most people have never heard of. She's a brand ambassador. Sometimes I have fun stuff in my purse. I called her up a few weeks later and we went for a drink in a whiskey bar. I'm Jamie Johnson and I'm the Canadian brand ambassador for the Belvenie Scotch. It's already me you have fun stuff in your purse. I want to look at your purse. I have nothing today, but sometimes I will have fun, rare samples. The Balvenie has come out with that peated expression that's available in the States right now. And usually I keep samples like in my purse. So if there's like, you know, someone who I think would really appreciate it or wanted to try it or reach out to me and asked about it, I'll probably have something tucked away for them just so they can try it, just for fun. Jamie's approach is a lot different from how a liquor salesperson works. At that wedding, she wasn't walking around with her scotch bottle saying, here, have a sample, and now, like, Here's a coupon by Balvini. Jamie didn't even really talk about the scotch. In brand ambassador parlance, she just let people absorb the Balvini experience. No expectations. She does that pretty much everywhere she goes. It's just a, a fun and I hope very casual friendship. I think it's the best if it's an authentic sort of relationship rather than, you know, somebody showing up to a bar and being like, oh boy, here she comes again, like trying to schmooze me like that's I would be devastated if that's how people thought of me I just try to go in and enjoy the time just like I would on a normal night the bartender's up for a chat then sure if they're not drink your drink and that's good but if they are up for a chat there's a lot of things that Jamie that a good brand ambassador can do Brand ambassadors will buy out your entire bar for a night to run invitation-only tastings for you and, say, a hundred of your industry friends and colleagues. Or they'll supply you with rare, limited-edition bottles that other places just can't get. They run mixology competitions. There's a ton of them in just about every major city every month with valuable prizes. Or in Jamie's case, if you're a bartender or booze writer who wants to learn a little more about scotch making, she can set you up with a trip to the Balvenie's distillery, the one in Scotland. 
And yeah, don't worry about the tab. So every once in a while, we'll do a trip to Scotland. We, of course, we do a distillery trip. We have a fun little thing with Anthony Bourdain. Anthony Bourdain does a branded YouTube series for the company. You know, we've brought bartenders and media down just to New York to go see the launch of our new YouTube series or whatever. Just fun little perks like that. And even just at summer weddings, that sort of brand experience. No pressure, no expectations. I just think you might enjoy this. It works. On the way home the day after that wedding, I looked over at my wife and said, you know, I need to buy a bottle of that Balvini scotch. From CBC, this is The Fridge Light, the hidden stories behind the food you eat and the drink you drink. I'm Chris Nottle-Smith. And if you can picture for a minute the last time you walked into a bar, you know the rows of bottles behind the counter? Did you ever stop to wonder how and why those bottles, those particular liquor brands, got there instead of other brands? And if you happen to have a liquor cabinet at home, no matter how big or small, even if it's just a couple bottles. Well, why did you buy those bottles exactly? In this episode, you'll have another a dive into the little-known world of the bar industry's big spending, booze-slinging, swag-happy benefactors, whose influence extends a lot farther than you might think. There are always other forces at play as far as the bottles that are behind the bar. This is Robert Simonson. I write about cocktails and spirits for a living. Robert's one of the preeminent drink writers of the last decade. Primarily I write for the New York Times, and I also write books upon these subjects. His articles in the Times and his book called A Proper Drink chart the twists and turns of the modern cocktail revival. The book has a whole chapter on brand ambassadors and how that job, that really strange and influential job, was born. Let me go back to the way it was before this. Mostly back then, owners and bartenders, they didn't really care that much what sort of bottles they were serving. A lot of these decisions were decided for them by the distributor. These were basically salesmen, you know, running a business, and they'd come in and they'd say, this is what we carry. And uh, the bartender or bar owner in question probably wanted a few of what they had a few bottles, very important bottles that they needed, but in order to get those, the distributor would say, okay, you can have those, but you also have to take some of this stuff that you don't want. And so that's how a lot of the bottles ended up behind the bar. By the way, I'm pretty sure that this is the only reason why Creme de Menthe exists. Anyway. And uh, you're dealing mainly with the big distributors, the big companies. It's hard to imagine that 15 years ago there were no craft distillers. There were big distillers. The big distillers wielded their influence as a blunt force. And this does still happen. Even today, when you go into a bar and you see a jukebox, or you see a neon sign, or you see those bar mats that are on top of the bar, I mean... There's been some trade-offs there, you know? It's like, we'll buy you a color television set if you carry this flavored vodka that we're trying to push. But the person who figured out how to beat that system, how to put a tiny craft-distilled brand front and center in a world that was dominated by these multi-billion dollar liquor conglomerates, was a British bartender named Simon Ford. He represented Plymouth Gin. 
And in 2002, none of us heard about Plymouth Gin, not on this side of the Atlantic. It was a small gin, it was a legacy gin, it had been around for 200 years, used to be important. British sailors drunk it all the time. Uh, there was a relationship between the Navy and Plymouth Gin. But by 2002, they were selling maybe 5,000 cases, and that was it. Worldwide? Worldwide, yeah, so really small. You know, they were like a micro distillery, but not by choice. <laughs> so Plymouth Gin hired a marketing guy named Nick Blacknell. The company that had it hired Nick and said, we got to get this thing back up off its knees and we got to sell some of this gin. Can you help us? Nick knew this guy, Simon Ford, who had worked in a wine shop and had been a bartender. And he knew that Simon was kind of a chipper, friendly, uh, go-getter, easy to like. And so he hired Simon, and he said, Okay, Simon, your job is to sell Plymouth gin, and I'm going to send you to America, and you find a way to make these people buy our gin. This was not as easy a job as it may sound. Gin, at the time, was still considered, at least largely considered, this fusty, old-timey spirit. Gin was what your slightly dotty great-aunt kept hidden in her underwear drawer alongside the commemorative tea set with the pictures of Lady Di. America wasn't in love with gin. We were in love with vodka. Uh, why do we want another gin? You know, we already have Beefeater and Tanqueray. Do we really need anything else? So he was banging his head against the wall for a very long time. But eventually he found the bartenders and the bar owners who cared a little bit more about what they were putting in the glass and wanted to have some decent stuff and to make real choices about the bottles behind their bar. Simon was lucky in that Plymouth was actually a quality product. He wasn't pushing garbage. Plymouth gin is good gin. He just had to convince people that it was good gin and that they needed another gin. Another thing that Simon Ford had going for him, he knew more about his brand than just the dollars and cents. One of the aspects of the brand ambassador that was different from the old liquor salesman was that he was educated. He knew everything about his brand and he really cared about it. He could answer any question. And so since he was educated, he could become an educator and he could tell every bartender about the brand. And he talked his employers into letting him bring American mixologists over to the distillery to tour it. Now, this does not seem unusual to us today because this happens all the time with bartenders and distilleries, but it didn't back then. If you were a bartender, you were never offered a trip, airfare and, and lodging to go somewhere just to look at a distillery. So he started taking people over to London, and then he started taking London bartenders over to New York, and Simon Ford started creating this international community of bartenders. Simon Ford was Plymouth Gin. And more than that, he was a rare distillery rep who treated bartenders like professionals with real respect. They were treating bartenders in a new way. They were treating them as influencers, as decision makers, as people with a mind of their own and a creative urge of their own. And so the bartender thinks, hey, I'm... I'm learning something. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pay attention to this guy, and I, I think I'll carry his brand. Within a few years, Plymouth was stocked as a go-to gin, if not the go-to gin, behind just about every bar that mattered. And as for sales, those grew. Plymouth Gin's sales went from 5,000 cases annually to a quarter million in the space of just four years. 
And so that was really the advent of the era of the brand ambassador and only gained momentum after that. As the position became more common, the liquor brands pulled some of the very best, most creative bartenders from behind the stick and paid them to teach other bartenders how to be better at their jobs, using their spirits, of course. In a lot of ways, the rise of the brand ambassador helped fuel the current cocktail renaissance. It helped improve the average cocktail for, well, for you and me. Because the watchword of just about every brand ambassador, it isn't sales or marketing or even influence. It's education. I always loved telling people that stood at my bar or sat at my bar about the products they were drinking, about the cocktails they were drinking. And that side, I've, I've certainly got that in spades now that I get to educate for Hennessy. This is Jordan Bushnell. He's a well-known bartender and bar owner in Toronto, and also a brand ambassador. Though he owes at least some of his career to the success of Simon Ford, the brand he reps isn't exactly some scrappy upstart. I'm the national Hennessy ambassador for the U.S. Hennessy, the cognac brand from France. Cognac is a spirit that's been around a very, very long time. Hennessy's been around for 252 years. You know how Simon Ford was Plymouth Gin? Jordan Bushnell pretty much embodies Hennessy. He looks and acts almost like a real ambassador from some tiny but effortlessly cool and expensive European principality. Jordan is a smooth talker, and his Instagram is this scrapbook of tuxedo parties and private helicopter picnics. And, oh, look, there he is with LL Cool J co-hosting a Grammy Awards after party. I mean, you're, you're so well-pressed. You're so, your hair is perfect. You have really good skin, even. I've never said that to a man before. Are you always on like this? It's mostly moisturizer. <laughs> but I love speaking about this stuff. So I'm, I am always on, but as I said, I think that's just been naturally me. One day, Jordan might be overseeing the company's regional brand ambassadors. And a day later, he's on his way to France's cognac region with a group of bartenders. Hey, I'm Johanna Wagstaff. And hi there, I'm Rohit Joseph. And we're asking for 10 minutes of your day to go through the 10 things that the UN recommends we can all do when it comes to climate change. Please don't leave. No. And also the things <laughs> aren't new. We are just wired to not do them. We promise you to help you figure out your brains and you and your people can make better choices to combat climate change. 10 Minutes to Save the Planet is available now on CBC Listen and everywhere you get your podcasts. Consumers are ever more educated today on the other side of the bar and they want to ask those questions. They know even less than the bartender about it, but certainly if they ask the question, they expect the bartender, rightly or wrongly, to know the answer. And so my job is to make sure that bartender has the right amount of education, the right amount of knowledge to be able to answer those questions. So I'm setting them up for success with that consumer. It's a friendship with benefits. The bartender gets better at their job so they can make better drinks and make more money. Hello, hello, hello. Take Tyler Pratt, for instance. Hey, man, how are you? I am well. He's a bartender who works in New Orleans. A couple nights before we connected with him, these tequila company ambassadors walked into his bar. So they sat right in front of me and just talked to me all night long. And they brought some swag and they, it was like a hat that they gave me. It was a really nice hat. I was like, oh, I like your hat. And he was like, here, take it. And Hold was, on, what, what okay. kind of hat is this? It was like a... 
Really nice camo snapback with like a mesh back part so your head can breathe. You could tell that like it wasn't just a typical throwaway hat. And all I was saying was like, nice hat. He took it right off his head and he was like, I want you to have it. Like real genuine. Like I want, like you've earned this hat. And I was like, okay, cool. (laughs) I really honestly didn't know anything about their, their tequila before they came in. And then now it's because they were so nice and the tequila is legitimately very good. It is something that I actively seek out in my own drinking. And then as something when a customer says, I want a tequila drink, but you know, I don't want well, I want something extra. Now I'm like, you know what? You should try Fortaleza. These guys are really great. They care about the tequila. The flavors are really good. Why don't you try the Reposado? So it works. What it they're trying does to do works. Work. Yes. Ideally, it even goes a step further than that. The brand ambassador's message filters down to bartenders, and then the bartender's message filters down through the entire boozy, back-scratching, brand-happy ecosystem to ordinary, everyday pikers, to people like you and me. If I'm doing a great job, I'd like to hope that is the case where I introduced someone somewhere along the line, if not you directly, somewhere along the line in your life to Hennessy, to Cognac, and they went out and started either making cocktails with it behind the bar or they went home and bought a bottle and you went to their house for a Christmas party and sampled it or you went to that bar, had a cocktail, you had that bartender teach you about it or you saw it on a menu. There are multiple different ways uh, that you see it more and more, you get familiar with it and maybe you go pick it up. And that's the ultimate goal Also, the fact that if you know more about that and you're excited about that, that's really the brand ambassador's job there. It's the brand ambassador butterfly effect. Yes. That's a great way of putting it. The brand ambassador butterfly effect. That's a seminar name right there. (laughs) You're welcome. (laughs) If all that sounds like a well-lubricated machine, if the travel and the parties and the near-limitless expense accounts sound like a perfect life... I should probably note, being a brand ambassador also comes with some serious downsides. In one online post that made the rounds of the whiskey world, a brand ambassador named Georgie Bell called out the entire industry for rampant sexism and harassment. At one event she was working, a guy just stared at Georgie's legs and told her, I bet you wake up like that. And sometimes the sexism is more insidious. I think there are a couple statements and questions we get out in the field that, you know, some others don't get. Jamie Johnson. You know, I get the, um, you actually drink whiskey question a lot, which is funny given like I'd be a terrible brand ambassador for whiskey if I didn't. (laughs) So yeah, so I get those sort of questions sometimes. And actually having a name, Jamie being a male name, sometimes people are absolutely like, I show up to an event and they're like, oh, I wasn't expecting you. And I'm like, oh, of course you weren't. Of course you weren't. No, you weren't expecting me at all. You know, it's funny. Women have been distilling spirits since the Egyptian times. We've been making whiskey forever. We're the brand managers. We're marketing. We're accounting. We work in the distilleries and we're brand ambassadors. So I'm, I'm always sort of baffled that it's still like a thing. And I'm excited to be, you know, a part of the new generation of female whiskey drinkers and ambassadors and people in the industry will, will, it will just be a given. Like no one will bat an eye when 50% of the crowd is female or, or 100% of the crowd is female. Another brand ambassador told me they spend a lot of their time as babysitters, making sure their half-wasted colleagues and clients get home safe. 
burnout and overconsumption are serious workplace hazards. Jamie has a trick or two for keeping those at bay. While it is part of the job, you know, it's not always the worst thing to like throw a, a soda water in your glass and put a lime slice on the side and pretend it's a, a vodka soda or something. Because at the end of the day, you got to get up usually and do your expenses or get on a conference call. So you got to pay as much attention to that piece as the, the whiskey piece, the fun piece. Yeah, the party piece. So it's not a perfect job. It has a high turnover rate. And not everybody's convinced that all that brand ambassador education is actually making our drinks any better. Here's Robert Simonson. I don't think the good cocktail bars are putting crappy spirits behind the bar anymore because they feel obligated to by the distributors. But I think a lot of those bottles get there because a lot of bartenders are friends with brand ambassadors. These brand ambassadors used to be bartenders. So now your buddy is representing such and such whiskey or such and such gin. You're going to help them out a little bit. Yeah, I'll put your bottle behind my bar. Maybe you don't like that gin or that whiskey, but you don't want to be a jerk about it. So it gets behind there. I can go into a bar and I can figure out how every bottle got there. And so, like, half of them will be because that's what they want and it's a great product. And the other half is because they know this person or they're doing that person a favor or they used to do brand work for that company or that company once flew them to London. And so, there it is. I get all that. And part of me wants to know that when I walk into a bar and order a cocktail, the bartender chose the ingredients for one reason only. For what's inside the bottles. But at the same time, there are literally thousands of choices for rum and whiskey, gin and vodka. So, of course, there's going to be outside factors that influence how bartenders and bar owners choose. And at least when I get out for a drink, it's not like the particular brands the bartenders choose make a big difference to me. The whole brand ambassador effect hasn't exactly turned me off of booze. I've got an appointment at a place called Toronto Temperance Society. They're not actually a temperance society. It's a bar, a cocktail bar. A really good one. Tiny room, darkly lit, friendly, bartenders, hushed conversations. You know the kind of place. They're all about the drinks. It's afternoon, a few hours before service starts. You must be Alex. Alex James, he's the bar manager. Knowing what I now know about brand ambassadors and their influence, I figured I'd see what a really serious cocktail spot, a place that's known for brooking no cocktail compromises, keeps behind its bar. Is there really a relationship behind every bottle? Considering it's tiki night, I'm going to make you a rum cocktail from one of our uh, favorite rums that we like pouring here, which is Mount Gay. Note that Alex didn't say Bacardi rum. He didn't say Appleton rum or Nielsen rum. From this panoply of choices, Alex and his fellow bartenders have chosen to pour the black barrel rum from Mount Gay Distilleries in Barbados. The drink he makes me is called Mama's Toast. Black barrel, a little marmalade syrup, some mole bitters, and a little cardamom bitters. For the record, this drink is strictly professional. Like, as 
If I'd ever drink an ice-cold rum cocktail made with marmalade syrup and cardamom bitters on a work day in the middle of the after... Oh, my God, that goes down nicely. No, thank you. It's beautiful. Uh, anyway, that Mount Gay rum, the key reason Alex pours it... We pour it a lot, uh, not because it's just it's a fantastic rum, but it's because we have a, a great relationship uh, with the brand ambassador, who's also a member of our members-only uh, bar, comes into the bar a lot and supports us whichever way. Just about every bottle behind Alex's bar has a relationship behind it. And as I'm sitting there sipping my mama's toast, it dawns on me that so do a lot of the bottles in my own liquor cabinet at home. I own a lot of the same bottles that Alex keeps at the Toronto Temperance Society because I read their names on a menu or saw them behind a bar or they were recommended in one of the cocktail books I use. Over the last few years, I've bought Plymouth and Hendrix Gin. I've bought Lot 40 Whiskey, Mount Gay Rum. I've bought a pile of bottles that gained their reputation first with bartenders. Until sitting at Alex's bar, I'd never really stopped to question why. When I'm reaching for a bottle, I'm not just looking at the bottle. like, oh, that's a good product. It'll work well. I also think, I know this person. I like this person. I'm going to come up with a cocktail that works well with the spirit they're representing. Like in the case of Rittenhouse Rye, there's no brand ambassador. We used to be on our well, the rye that we pour the most often, but we switched it out for Lot 40 because we have a good relationship with Dave Minton and Spencer uh, Goodman, uh, who represent a nice Canadian rye. So we decided to change it over. Is that really so bad? Business decisions being on the basis of relationships? In an age when everything else is digital, when people can barely look each other in the eye, it's kind of refreshing isn't it? Both make fantastic old fashions, both make fantastic Manhattans. It's more just about representing the local people, the people you know in your community, opposed to like a big faceless brand that never comes by to say hi. (laughs) And that mama's toast Alex made me with the Mount Gay rum, it's a drink, a really good one. It's going down just fine. This is the Fridge Light. The voices you heard today were Jamie Johnson from the Balvini, drinks writer Robert Simonson, whose book called A Proper Drink is a seriously excellent read, Jordan Bushnell from Hennessy, and Tyler Pratt in New Orleans, as well as Alex James from the Toronto Temperance Society. This episode was distilled by Michelle Macklem, Zoe Tennant, Veronica Simmons, Alison Broverman, and me, Chris Noddle-Smith. And absolutely no bourbon was in any way harmed in the production of this episode. Additional theme music is by Paolo Pietro Paolo. Our executive producer is Arif Narani. And if you're listening on Apple Podcasts, please be our ambassador. Write us a review. And if you want to absorb more of the Fridge Light brand experience, no expectation, no pressure, tell your friends about us. There's nothing like word of mouth. You can also connect with us on Twitter and share photos on Instagram at FridgeLightCBC. And for more information on this episode, visit cbc.ca slash thefridgelight. I'm Chris Noddle-Smith. For 
For more CBC Original Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash originalpodcasts.